From Washington, D.C., this is the Korean American Perspectives, a new podcast presented to you by the Council of Korean Americans. Welcome to the Korean American Perspectives podcast, where we explore the triumphs and challenges of the Korean American experience and examine different sides of complex issues that shape our community. We thank you for tuning in and hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the Korean American Perspectives. My name is Abraham Kim. I'm here with my co-host, Jessica Lee. How are you, Jessica? Hi, everyone. It's great to be here at our final episode. Yeah, today is a milestone event. We have done 10 episodes of the Korean American Perspectives. And I can't believe that we've done so many episodes. At the start, when we said we were going to do 10 for the season, I thought it was a mountain too high to climb, but we've made it, Jessica. (laughs) Yes, we have. And it's been a wonderful journey. It's taken us to so many different parts of the country. I think uh, you have a list of all the cities our speakers come from. Yeah, we've had speakers from L.A., uh, who've hailed from L.A., Bozeman, uh, Orange County, San Francisco, Washington, D.C., and as far as Seoul, Korea. So we've had a, a really diverse um, uh, menu of, of uh, interviewees that uh, we've spoken to over, over the past several months, ranging from musicians, civic leaders, business leaders, to academia and philanthropists. And I, I think it's important that uh, we take a pause here and ask our audience for feedback, as well as uh, other people or other leaders that uh, our audience would love for us to interview in the future. And the best way to do that is to send us an email at uh, podcast at councilka.org. That is uh, our our best way to communicate with us. But we can't uh, take away the focus on uh, today's important guest. Uh, Jess? That's right. So thanks, Abe. Uh, So we are very excited to share this episode with you all. It's an interview that Abe conducted with Professor Tegu Lee who teaches law and political science at the University of California, Berkeley, and is involved in a number of high-profile research and uh, analyses related to the census, political representation of Asian Americans, uh, and demographic trends. And so it was such a pleasure to listen to this interview and to learn a lot about uh, how Professor Lee sees the world. What really stood out for me in the interview, Abe, was when he said he teaches his students not to think of democracy as a noun, but as a verb, something you have to continually do and pursue, uh, that this is not a stagnant thing that we take for granted, and that democracy and the democratic process is uh, something that we need to be constantly nurturing and and participate in for it to, to be alive. Uh, And so this uh, was a particularly enriching uh, episode, and we look forward to your feedback. So let's turn over now to the interview. Today I'm pleased to be joined by Tegu Lee, George Johnson Professor of Law and Professor of Political Science at the University of California, Berkeley. Tegu is also the co-principal investigator of the National Asian American Survey, uh, as well as for the Bay Area Poverty Tracker and the managing director of the Asian American Decisions. Uh, He serves on a number of boards and councils 
and one of which is the National Advisory Committee for the U.S. Census Bureau. He's also a CKA member, one of our newest members. Thank you for traveling all the way from the San Francisco Bay Area, Tegu. It's great to have you on this show. Well, thank you so much for having me, and I'm delighted to be a, a new member of CK and honored to be part of this podcast. Oh, well, well we're, we're happy to have you here in our studios today. Um, Tegu, I, I wanted to start off uh, by asking you about your life, uh, about your upbringing. Uh, I understand you were born in South Korea, uh, and then uh, you moved to Malaysia, uh, and you spent much of your, some of your childhood there, and then you moved to the United States. How was that, How, moving from Malaysia to the United States? Uh, do you recall those early days? Well, increasingly as I get older, I, I don't recall those early days. But no, but I think I, I, they, were, they were certainly formative years. And as I grow older, I've come to appreciate how some of my early experiences in life have really shaped a lot of uh, not just the substance of what I do, but the way that I do it and the way that I think about the issues that I research and and teach about. So, um, yes, I, I was born in, uh, um, actually, uh, while my father was serving as a military, as a doctor in the army, um, off of a base uh, in Masan, South Korea. Uh, and um, I've come to realize that I'm part of the generation of Korean Americans that really have experienced the remarkable contrast from the Korea of the time of our early childhood to the Korea that is today. And so I think just to see that span in, in one lifetime from a home country that was a, you know, really a developing poor country. I mean, I was, I was born by uh, somebody who was uh, selling stuff off the streets because uh, we were living off of the military base. You know, there was nobody there to, to deliver me. And so uh, my mother just had uh, somebody go out and you know, into the street and see if there's anybody who knew anything about delivering <laughs> uh, babies. So I think just the contrast between the career of that time to the career of today has really informed my perspective on things like uh, inequality, economic development, and their relation to, to politics. I think my time in, in Malaysia did a lot of the same thing. I think Malaysia was very much a developing country at the time. My father was there to do a lot of international Health work, and the other part of my of my early uh, upbringing was the constancy of migration, not just from country to country, but within countries as well. So, I don't know how unusual this is because I know that part of the Korean diaspora is uh, a history of displacement um, many times over. But I moved uh, eleven times before graduating from high school, and I went to nine different schools before graduating from high school, and so. You know, in a, in a way, I, I, I became inured to the, the social stresses and the social skills required to, you know, adapt to new societies. And, and in some ways, I think maybe that personal experience has, has fed my interest in uh, the ways in which uh, immigrants in new societies become adapted, become uh, incorporated, become politically uh, active. Um, yeah. Was there a defining moment that put you on the pathway to political science and, and the things that you're studying now? Um, yes, and it was a somewhat, and it didn't happen until a bit later in my adult life because uh, frankly, I, I had a lot of the pressures that a lot of Korean American uh, feel from their parents in terms of um, you know, following a particular pathway. And I, I've, I've given talks before where you know, I've, um, 
I share with the audience that I, I have two out of the three strikes that are that that um, I guess disqualify you as being Korean. <laughs> uh, the first strike is uh, to have gotten admitted to Harvard out of high school and not not gone to Harvard. Uh, the second strike was to have gotten admitted into medical school and not having finished medical school. So no, no Harvard degree, no MD. Um, I guess the third strike would have been if I hadn't married uh, uh, another Korean American uh, woman, um, and I, I fortunately, you know, uh, met the love of my life, who happened to be Korean American. So at least I saved myself from that complete disqualification. But I was uh, fully uh, going down the track of. Um, uh, I guess immigrant success by virtue of being a, you know, a successful professional uh, physician. But I found that throughout my whole time in medical school, I was especially interested in a lot of uh, political issues. So um, I, I will not share the percentage of classes that I attended in <laughs> my first two years of medical school. But I will say I, I spent a lot of my time uh, organizing around a lot of political issues. And, uh, you know, economists talk about the theory of revealed preferences, that if you keep uh, finding out that you're spending a lot of your time doing something other than what you ostensibly say that you're interested in planning to do, then you're telling yourself that actually you want to be doing something else. Uh, and at that moment, I realized that, you know, maybe, um, you know, medicine was not uh, the right career path for me. I also knew that organizing was not the career uh, path for me because, frankly, I was not a terribly good organizer because I often got um, too stuck in the mud thinking through, you know, <laughs> uh, a lot of, you know, philosophical issues involved with things like civil disobedience or what the proper, you know, pathway to participatory democracy is and things like that. And I came to realize again that that probably meant that I was more interested in engaging uh, in the realm of ideas about politics than in the actual uh, roll up your sleeves uh, doing of politics. Moving forward a little bit, and now you're obviously teaching political science uh, at, at UC Berkeley. Uh, it must be an interesting time to teach political science in the current uh, political environment that we're in. Um, I'm curious um, how you teach, what kinds of things you teach your students uh, in the current environment about our democracy. Well, I, I'll just take interesting as a euphemism for uh, complicated, tortured, uh, and you know, occasionally uh, stimulating. So I think I think the the politics of our times have really forced people like me who uh, you know um, make their life and their career out of thinking about politics uh, has really challenged a, a lot of the assumptions that we bring to what it is we're we're doing and. Um, oftentimes, those assumptions start with assumptions about your your fellow citizen, your your fellow person, and the way that they think about politics and what really motivates their politics. So, um, in a way, I've tried to rethink a lot of how I teach. Um, I've also tried to um, address what I see are visible, you know, signs of anxiety among a lot of my students because a lot of the politics that they see being enacted by people a generation or two older than them are politics that will affect you know, the future course of their own lives. And so I think it's really important to give them a sense of empowerment about what they uh, should be doing about it. And it, it's not just the professorial, here are some facts that you should know <laughs> to help you along the way, but I really want to try to empower them as well. So one of the things that I do in all my classes, uh, at least since 2016, has been 
to find some time during the class to get students to think about what seems like an inane phrase, but I think there's a lot um, uh, behind it, uh, which is to tell my students to think of democracy as a verb and not as a noun. Now, you know, in terms of grammar, that's obviously wrong. <laughs> but if you think about why that's wrong and what the value is of thinking about democracy as a verb rather than uh, a noun, I think there's a lot uh, there's a lot to that, and students seem to uh, to appreciate that. So your encouragement is for them to engage in democracy. That is an active um, exercise, active engagement, active involvement of these students in order for it to thrive, rather than it being a kind of a permanent state of something. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I don't want students to th to to think in the way that a lot of of, of us who um, you know are born in the United States and grow up in in a country assuming that democracy is something in the background and the only requirements of democracy are to register to vote and show up to vote if you have the time uh, to do that. But I, I want them to think of democracy as something that's constantly evolving. It's, it's a living thing and its health really depends on whether or not the body politic itself, which in the definition of democracy is the people are willing to nurture it and feed it and restore it uh, back to, to health and life and vigor. I want to dig a little bit into some of the research that you do uh, related to democracy, especially uh, you are one of the preeminent um, social scientists that study the, the Asian American Pacific Islander uh, community, and especially collecting survey and data and analyzing it, and obviously talking about the the important implications of, of the data and the response you're getting. And uh, um, you gave a presentation to CKA uh, at least tw twice uh, within this year. And some of the data that you shared with us was uh, really eye-opening. And I wanted to dig a little bit about uh, some of the research that you've been doing there. Um, you, you mentioned that there's been a dramatic growth in the Asian American community. Uh, uh, and right now, we're at around, what, 22 million? Uh, the AAPI community is about 22 million. And there will be... Uh, but they've been growing at such uh, astronomical rates, right? From You mentioned from 2000 to 2010, uh, the growth rate has been somewhere between 43 to 46% per annum. Uh, and uh, what was really eye-opening for me was that uh, by 2043, the majority will be the minority, and in fact, our minority community, what we consider minority communities today, will in fact outnumber uh, white Caucasian um, population. And then within that, that growing minority group today, uh, by 2050, uh, the largest immigrant group uh, will be Asian Americans and will, be, will make about 12% uh, of that population. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what's driving those numbers uh, as opposed to comparative to, say, the Hispanic community or the African-American community and others? What's driving that trend? Well, I think um, what's driving the trend are long-term uh, uh, shifts in immigration, both in terms of the sheer number of immigrants coming to the United States and then the regions of the world that uh, people are coming from, um, that's since uh, the Hard Seller Act of 1965, that long-term quotas in terms of countries of origin uh, were lifted, 
which effectively opened the doors to immigrants from the South and immigrants from across the Pacific Ocean. Uh, coupled with uh, more recent um, restrictionist uh, immigration laws and immigration politics, which have effectively limited the um, amount of legal immigration from south of the United States and increased flows relative proportionally of immigration uh, from Asia. So actually since 2005, the greatest share of newcomers to the United States have been newcomers from Asia rather than newcomers from Central America or Latin America. Now in terms of this um, uh, future world in the United States where whites will no longer be uh, in the majority, and the current projections are that will happen sometime around 2043. Uh, I think I would um, uh, I would raise a very kind of cautionary uh, tale to accompany that demographic future, which is too often I think people think of 2043 as as some kind of you know magical pot of gold at the end of a demographic rainbow, and I think nothing nothing special is going to happen in 2043. The, 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 you know, the day whites are no longer in the majority in the United States, they will be 49.9999% of the country's population. And the only magic to the number 50 as a percentage in a, in a democratic society is if it has some kind of correspondence to what happens in elections. It's the metaphor of the will of the people. And I think a lot of the politics around the will of the people in terms of demographic change are exactly the politics you are seeing playing out in the United States today. In 2008, with um, uh, a rainbow coalition of multiracial, multi-ethnic voters uh, voting in overwhelming numbers to elect the first African-American president of the United States, and in 2016, with what many people interpret to be a backlash of disaffected white working class voters um, choosing to elect President Trump. So, in a way, I think nothing magical is going to happen in 2043, and a lot of the anticipated politics around race are politics that are already affecting us today. I think the other thing to point out about demographic change that is specific to the Korean-American community is that Korean-Americans, as a share of the Asian-American population and also as a share of the non-white population in the United States, is actually a proportion that is shrinking. And so, you know... Part of the cautionary tale for me in terms of Korean Americans and their involvement in politics is that's something that has to happen now. Nothing magical is going to happen in terms of Korean American empowerment in 2043 as a result of, of our suddenly becoming a majority minority nation. Um, the politics of this country around issues of race and belonging and immigration are politics that are happening now. Korean Americans are better situated today to have a voice in what those politics look like now than they are likely to have in 2043, surely in terms of numbers. Uh, and so I wouldn't wait for anything special to happen <laughs> several decades out. A lot of those important issues are issues that we have to have a say in and a stake in uh, today. Another interesting aspect of your research is uh, really showing a uh, a mixed um, uh, portrait of the Korean American uh, community experience and their achievements. Um, you had mentioned that uh, in in general, Korean Americans are very highly educated as a population. Uh, I think the the data you had shown that. Uh, uh, the average uh, U.S. Uh, BA recip uh, I, I'm, 
mainstream American uh, is about 32%, right, uh, nationally. But among uh, Asian American in general, the AAPI community in general, it's about 53.8%. Uh, but among Korean Americans having received a BA, it's 55.1%. So even slightly higher than the average of, uh, of the Asian American community. Uh, but what, what seems to be telling about this data is that when you look at the median income of Korean Americans versus Asian Americans, for example, uh, among Asian Americans, the median income is about $83,456. Uh, but the Korean American median income is much lower, uh, $67,870. Uh, there's a disparity there of almost fifteen thousand, more than fifteen thousand dollars. So I'm wondering what's what's causing that dip. Uh, if we're uh, a, a very educated population, and um, obviously they don't, we think they correlate, but maybe that's not the case. So what's driving that trend? Yeah, I think you know, um, in the language of economists, I think you the the biggest driver of that trend is what you would call a, a labor skills mismatch. And so, um, and that is simply to restate, that's a fancy term to just restate the fact that for the level of education that Korean Americans have, um, their, their median household incomes do not uh, keep up with that, uh, that level of education, which is a good instrument for thinking about what their, their level of training is for a range of different professions. So um, I think Korean Americans probably more so than a lot of Asian Americans, and I think Asian Americans in general, uh, for Asian Americans in general, this is a, a feature of their immigrant experience that a lot of Asian American immigrants with high levels of education will wind up having to uh, take for reasons of uh, lack of proper credentialing or, or lack of language skills, jobs that are not the jobs that they were educated to uh, follow as a career path or trained in as a, as a career in their home countries. Um, and so, you know, a, a lot of, uh, you know, mom and pop shops that Korean Americans uh, run as small businesses might be run by people with college degrees or, you know, post-baccalaureate uh, uh, degrees. And, and that, in part, not only explains this mismatch between educational background uh, and median household income, but some of the particular points of vulnerability, economic vulnerability that you see within the Korean American population. So that Two uh, data points there that I shared in my presentation were if you if you look at overall poverty rates, Korean Americans don't look uh, more likely to be poor than the average uh, American family. But if you look at poverty rates among the Korean American elderly, uh, they're about double the rates of that you find in the, the general population. Um, the other place is to look at um, the continuing uh, uninsured uh, problem within the United States and uh, the percentages of Korean Americans without um, health insurance or without adequate health insurance, so there's, also, there's uninsured and there's underinsured, continue to be significantly higher than that found in the general population. So do you, are you suggesting that perhaps, uh, I, I heard you use this term, a bi, the community is very bimodal, uh, and that perhaps the uh, the older population within the Korean American community is not as um, are having uh, are lower in the socioeconomic uh, experience, and uh, and there are a lot of uh, issues and problems related to that uh, among the older population. But in the younger population, that tends to be more educated, professional, they tend to be doing better off. And so there's this kind of almost this U shape uh, within the community. 
Uh, is is that is that what you're proposing or suggesting? Yeah. So I, you know, I have to, here. I have to say, uh, from my perspective, the data that are available are somewhat limited. So from the data that are available, I think um, the the picture that I see is this bimodal picture uh, of um, you know two different Korean Americas. There's sort of a professional class Korean America, and there's a working class Korean America. Um, what I see as bimodal, I'm not sure though if it's bifurcated. So for what I mean by that is, I don't know if that's within the same family that you're likely to find, within the same extended family that you're likely to find some people who are en enjoying these vaunted successes that you read about in mainstream media about Korean Americans. And within that same family, you might also have somebody who's really struggling. Or if in fact, these are two different parts of the Korean American community that really don't have a lot of touch points with one another. And in particular, uh, what the story is in terms of kind of local community organizations or local churches that are able to bring these two parts of the Korean American community together. That's, that's sort of a level of granularity that I'm not able to see or not able to think about what are the easy data sources. Uh, because I think that's a different story if there's the potential for uh, Korean Americans who have been enjoying or, you know, suffering different kinds of fates to be able to share their experiences. I think that's how you build community. But if it's really bifurcated and the, the sort of institutional, organizational points of connection aren't there, then that's that's a higher hurdle that, that we have to face to try to build out a thriving Korean American community. I want to go into the topic of political engagement, which you just spoke about. Um, uh, as a group, the uh, AAPI community uh, I guess a factor of their growth in population is also growing as a population of voters. Uh, and you mentioned in your research that uh, whereas in 2016, uh, AAPI voters are, were about 10 million, 9.8 million or so. But that group will grow to approximately 11 million by 2020. Uh, and the, uh, the possible voters from those eligible uh, voters will be around 6 million, assuming that not everyone will vote, but at least 6 million will likely vote in 2020, which is a significant growth from what it was in 2016, which was around 5, five million, a little over 5 million. So that's uh, almost, uh, you know, about a million more voters that are Asian Americans. Um, I'm wondering, um, you know, again, what's driving, what's the significance of that from your perspective? As a political scientist, the AAPI community growing by a million new voters. Uh, and it's something that you don't really read about in the, in the newspaper about the growth of uh, this community as a body of voters. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I'm reminded of, um, you know, something that people told me when I first came to the United States, which uh, has always stuck with me, which is, you know, you, you, you pick up a penny here, you pick up a penny there on the street, and pretty soon you have some real money. And, you know, no one picks up pennies from the street anymore, except I, I guess I still do. But you could think about the same thing in terms of uh, voting and elections. So for a very long period of time, part of the baked in logic for both the Democratic Party and the Republican Party with respect to Asian American voters is that they're simply too small, except for states that are so clearly one sided in terms of their partisanship, like New York and California. Yes, they have very large Korean American populations, yes, they have very large Asian American populations, but at this point uh, in time, they are overwhelmingly democratic. And so it's just not worth the investment in resources, the investment in time on the part of candidates to really try to mobilize and bring out um, that segment of the electorate. 
Um, when you think about demographic change at the rates at which uh, Asian Americans have been growing as a segment of the electorate, and then when you think about the location of that demographic change, if you remember earlier in this podcast, we talked about this shift from traditional immigration gateways to new destinations. A lot of those new destinations where you're seeing 60, 70, 80% growth in the Asian American population are actually very hotly contested states, especially in recent presidential elections. So um, uh, Virginia, Florida, Georgia, Texas, Nevada, Colorado, those are the states with very large uh, increases in their size of their Asian American population. And those are the states where, you know, um, 20,000 votes here, 30,000 votes here, and you could really make a big difference in the outcome of the election. And so I think for those reasons, uh, Asian Americans are no longer a segment of the electorate that can be ignored. And some of the best science out there, the science that political science have uh, conducted using what are called field experiments, are able to demonstrate that it's particularly with groups of voters like Asian Americans and Latinos that have been historically underinvested in by campaigns and candidates where you're likely to get your greatest return on investment from an additional mobilization uh, dollar. In 2016, uh, the main story that you read about voter turnout was a story of the demobilization of traditionally democratic segments of the electorate and then the mobilization of the white working class in favor of the Republican candidate. There was also a hidden story in the 2016 election, which was the remarkable mobilization of Asian American voters who voted overwhelmingly Democratic. So in a year where most of the, the, the traditional segments of the Democratic coalition were actually voting in lower numbers, Asian Americans as a group were actually getting registered in significantly higher numbers and then turning out in significantly higher numbers. And that story continued on in the 2018 midterms. You also mentioned in your research, and you alluded to this in your uh, comments right now, that uh, most of these AAPI uh, community members are voting uh, in uh, in majority for Democrats, right? Uh, so, uh, you mentioned in 2018, 72% of the uh, Asian Americans voted for a Democrat, a Democratic candidate. Uh, and then you look at the Korean American data as well as you propose, and that's fairly consistent even in the Korean American community. Uh, not just in the last election, but since 2012, uh, there have been 30% of the Korean American community have voted for Republican, while 70% has voted for Democrats. Uh, what's what's driving that trend? Because um, um, traditionally you think um, small business owner, Korean American, tends to be a little more conservative, business-oriented. Uh, you would think that would be more more people would be accustomed or supportive of the Republican agenda. Church going tend to be socially conservative. Uh, but in fact, the numbers tell a slightly different story. Yeah, if, uh, if I can um, uh, bring viewers back to the year 2015. So this is a pre-Trump year um, when most of America expected um, Florida, former Florida Governor Jeb Bush to be the presumptive nominee uh, for president on the Republican side of the party. Jeb Bush said in 2015 that Asian American voters are the canary in the coal mine for the Republican Party. And the analogy there being, you know, when a canary in a coal mine uh, uh, passes, then you know that the air quality is so bad that miners have to get out. 
Um, and what Bush was saying is that if there's a segment of the electorate that is wealthier than the average American, that espouses the kind of family values that the Republican Party believes their party members should espouse, and that are churchgoers at the rates uh, that Korean Americans are churchgoers, that is not voting Republican, then that's a serious sign that something is wrong with what the Republican Party is doing. And I, I, think, I think there was something uh, to that. And so the question is, why have Asian Americans been so drawn to voting for Democratic candidates? You know, and I think there, there, there is a, there is a uh, again, as with immigration, I think there are push and pull factors. I think a lot of the politics of, especially at the presidential candidate level, of Rep the Republican Party candidates over the last several election cycles uh, has made the United States feel to a lot of largely immigrant-based segments of the electorate to be a less welcoming country than the United States has been before. So a lot of the nativist uh, rhetoric with respect to immigration policy, a lot of the seeming hostility towards uh, communities of color, uh, and so on. So I think there are certain factors that are pushing uh, voters away from the Republican Party, and there are also pull factors. If you look at uh, Asian Americans and Korean Americans also in particular, as a segment of the electorate and ask them what is the most important issue for you going into this coming election. In 2016 and 2018, it was health care. Um, and so there are real policies that they see as having been delivered on, at least in part, uh, by the Democratic Party that they would not like to see the next uh, Republican politician take away from them. So. Um, if I ask uh, Korean Americans, you know, would you prefer to repeal the Affordable Care Act or to improve it? Um, most, by an overwhelming margin, Korean Americans and Asian Americans generally would like to see the Affordable Care Act improved on rather than repealed. And so health care is a vital issue that is uh, keeping them uh, in the democratic tent. The last thing I would say is, um, in general, and this is something that I think when I first started conducting surveys on this, it kind of surprised me because uh, even though I'm a survey researcher, when I go out and field a survey of a population that I haven't studied before, I often go based on instinct and intuition. And, you know, in terms of surveying Korean Americans, for me, instinct and intuition is to think about my family. Um, and my family, for the most part, is not overwhelmingly, uh, you know, uh, liberal across a wide range of issues. My parents are actually quite conservative on a lot of political issues. And so the thing that surprised me about Korean Americans and Asian Americans generally is across a really wide swath of policy issues, everything from uh, the environment to uh, compensatory uh, wages for men and women to immigration policy to healthcare reform, uh, Asian Americans seem quite liberal, um, often on the scale of 60 to 70 percent favoring the liberal side of a wide range of policy issues. There are only a couple of issues where that's not the case, but overwhelmingly um, uh, Korean Americans are liberal across a wide range of issues, and that is going to make them more likely to vote Democratic. I want to switch our conversation to uh, Korean American mobilization. Um, just looking at the data here, uh, Korean Americans relative to their Asian American um, counterparts are, are less, um, I guess, less politically involved, they're less politically engaged. Everything from uh, being self-mobilized to donating money to candidates to uh, volunteering and, and attending protests, for example. Um, uh, and I, I think uh, we, um, I think being Korean Americans, we kind of recognize that, that 
there is an issue here. And I'm wondering from a researcher's perspective and having studied many different groups, what can Korean Americans do to, what are areas of improvement? What, from your opinion, can we do to do a better job in mobilizing our Korean American community? Yeah, so that's a, that's a great question. I think in general, I tend to be a glass half full person. So I would first start out by agreeing with your characterization, but then also adding to it. So I think it's absolutely true that in the data, we see that Korean Americans across a wide range of different ways of getting politically engaged seem to be engaged at lower rates than uh, Asian Americans. And so if that's your reference point, I think there is a there there that we have to think about. Um, it's not just about voting, it's also about campaigning, it's about attending rallies, it's about talking to your friends and your neighbors about politics, uh, all the way to engaging in protest politics. Korean Americans seem to do it slightly less than other Asian Americans. I would say, though, that if you look at the last few election cycles, um, that's relative to an overall story of remarkable mobilization for Asian Americans as a whole. So if you just compared Korean Americans to the general population, I think that story holds for Korean Americans as well, that since um, in the last decade, Korean Americans have been uh, a lot more mobilized than they have been in the past. So the rates of change look promising, but then the absolute rates of participation are part of the worry. And in terms of your question, you know, what can Korean Americans do? I think you know, the, the, the most obvious and important thing is to stand up and be heard and, and, and to participate. So I think there are things that people can do individually to recognize their own agency and their own voice uh, in the political process in the United States. But I think you know, beyond what individuals can do is what institutions can do. So I think wherever Korean Americans live, I would ask um, listeners to think about how strong your community is at the organization level. Um, are there the right kinds of um, uh, community-based organizations where you live that are able to serve the community, that are able to bring people together. Sometimes becoming involved in politics is a matter of talking about politics with somebody else that you, you know, think are uh, experiencing the same things that you experience. So that could be some kind of after-church program, that could be, you know, in the basement of a service-providing organization, that could be any number of things. But if your community doesn't have a strong um, organizational foundation to get engaged politically, it's going to be a lot more difficult because, as I mentioned earlier, it's been the historical practice of the main political parties and their candidates to assume that uh, Korean-American voters are a segment of the electorate that you can ignore. Um, with your work on the U.S. Census, I can't let you uh, step away from this podcast without talking about our uh, 2020 census. Um, for those uh, for our listeners who are not as familiar about the census, can you talk a little bit about the importance of this upcoming 2020 census? Why should we pay attention? Yeah, so uh, I think you should pay attention to the census because it is not just about collecting uh, data and counting uh, the number of Americans in the United States. It is about the instrumental use of what you learn about the population counts in the United States and where and how they are distributed that affects fundamental things about how government runs, like who is going to get, what state is going to get how many members of Congress, and where are those congressional districts going to be. 
And also, how are the billions of dollars of uh, federal funding going to be dispersed across which communities and in what particular ways? So fundamental questions about uh, redistributive politics and distributive politics depend on the numbers that um, the census, uh, the decennial census decides to be the official population count of the United States. Now, 2020 is a very uh, politicized year for the, for the census count. Um, I think um, in, some, in some ways there's been too much attention given to the Trump administration's interest in having a citizenship question on the 2020 census. And uh, by my reading as a political scientist, the fact that there has been that much attention on the citizenship question in some ways is a little bit of smoke and mirrors behind the fact that the main interest, if there are political interests, um, I'm going to be redundant here, if there are political interests in uh, politicizing the 2020 census, um, the, the Trump administration has already won in the sense that the strategic goal, if you are facing an increasingly diversifying country and recognize that most of the diversity in the country tends to be voting Democratic in recent elections, and then to take from that as a strategic goal to try to reduce the population counts of certain segments of the U.S. population. Uh, I think the wheels have already been in motion, whether or not there is a citizenship question, in terms of the expected population counts for the 2020 census. Now, what do I mean by that? What I mean is that there's a lot of evidence to suggest that um, uh, communities of color and immigrant-based communities are already incredibly distrustful and fearful of the 2020 census count and are unlikely to participate in the 2020 census. The Census Bureau themselves um, uh, conducted a large, it's called a CBAMS survey, and I'm sorry that I can't remember what the uh, acronym stands for, but their CBAMS survey is a survey of about 17,000 uh, Americans and also includes uh, some 40 to 50 focus groups in different particular communities about what people are thinking about uh, in terms of the 2020 census. Um, the first alarming number out of the CBAM study, this is a study that's done uh, two years prior to each decennial census. So in 2008, the Census Bureau conducted a CBAM survey and 86% of respondents said that they planned to participate in uh, the census. Now that 86% as a figure should already alarm you because census participation is actually mandated by law. So if 86% say they're gonna participate in a census, that should already be a low number. In 2018, uh, when the Census Bureau conducted um, the, the CVAM survey for the 2020 census, that figure was 67%. For, a, for Asian Americans, that figure is 55%. Um, so the, the numbers of Americans, uh, as far as we can tell, who are planning to engage in uh, filling out their census form, um, two years before the census, at, at this point, it's one year before the census is about, is about to you know, um, uh, be implemented, is alarmingly low. Now, there's always a period, so the CBAM study is used so that the Census Bureau can really plan an outreach effort to really try to bridge the gap between 86% and 100%, and in this case, between 67% and 100%. But I have to tell you, 
getting from 67% to 100% is going to be really hard in 2020. And some of the real barriers are barriers that you find, you know, within the Asian American community. There's not enough data uh, uh, there in the CBAM study for me to be able to say what are the particular er areas of concern for Korean Americans. But for Asian Americans, there, there are huge gaps in terms of people's understanding about what the census uh, data are going to be used for. So a significant percentage of Asian Americans misunderstand the census as being about data collection so that there can be um, information sharing between law enforcement agencies, local police departments, and the FBI for the purposes of doing their work. A significant percentage of Asian Americans um, misconceive of the Census Bureau as being to give the Trump administration data so they could implement their um, uh, policy to try to uh, deport as many uh, undocumented immigrants as possible. Um, and um, one of the most telling statistics out of this CVAM study is the percentage of Americans who know that census participation is required by law. And that figure in 2018 was 25%. Um, so, so even without the citizenship question, there are enormous barriers uh, facing the 2020 census, and it can't be stated enough how important census participation is and how important getting the right population uh, counts are for the next decade of, uh, of politics and federal policy in the United States. So what can civic organizations like CKA and others uh, do to help, um, I guess, close that gap in terms of participation uh, in the census? Yeah, so I think a lot of the real work has to happen at the local level. I mean, the, the, the nature of American politics and American society today is that the great strength of the United States today, the social cement that still binds us together, are things that happen at the local level. And I think for that reason, you know, a lot of the uh, Census Bureau's efforts to really maximize participation have been to work with community uh, organizations at the local level. And I think so wherever CKA has uh, ties, either as CKA or as individual members of CKA to local organizations that are uh, engaged in some kind of 2020 census effort, I think, you know, get involved. So, you know, the simplest thing to do is to make sure that you're not part of that percent of Korean Americans that doesn't participate in the survey. Um, that the 2020 census I neglected to mention is the first census where you can actually fill out a physical form or you can also get online and, uh, and participate in the census through uh, their online format. That raises all kinds of other issues that we don't have time to talk about. But there are multiple ways that you can uh, um, participate in 2020 census yourself. But beyond your filling out the form uh, about, um, uh, you know, about your uh, being in the United States, I would just get involved with community-based organizations who are doing outreach efforts for, for the 2020 census. Tego, I feel like we can talk for hours about all of these different important political issues. Uh, but thank you very much for your time and your insights. And we appreciate your uh, contribution to help promote uh, the Korean American community and the Asian American community. So thank you, Tegu. Thank you so much for inviting me. I really enjoyed it. I hope you found uh, our last 45 minutes together fascinating because I just had I learned so much from uh, interviewing Tegu Lee. 
Uh, I know that he had presented at uh, multiple CK events about some of the data that he had shown, but just sitting down and really digging deep on the stories behind the numbers was a, was a fascinating journey for me. And I think it's a great way to end the series. Uh, we started with Andy Kim, Congressman Andy Kim, and his um, plea and pitch to the Korean American community was to get involved now, get mobilized. And I think Tegoli, uh, at the end of the series, is echoing the same thing that uh, one of the interesting data points he says by 2043 Asian American Pacific Islanders will become the fast not only the fastest growing but the largest group in the United States but we shouldn't wait till then instead we should mobilize now we should get involved now we should build institutions now and get our our community uh, directly involved in the political process and the civic process. So I think it's a great way to end our series. What do you think, Jess? I, I think that's exactly right. It was a great uh, bookend to this whole first season. And, um, you know, Professor Lee really uh, is, is able to uh, shed light on things that uh, I think we all think about but don't really have the data points to back up. And in particular, what I thought he really uh, highlighted very well uh, was you know this notion of uh, a bifurcated Korean America of a professional class and a working class, and that the challenge is going to be to um, you know find organizations and avenues for these two groups of people with different socioeconomic background and lived experiences to learn from each other, to support each other, and to lift each other up. And I think ultimately that has been real uh, part of the reason behind starting this podcast uh, at CKA. You know, we believe that by sharing stories of Korean Americans in a platform that's free and accessible to everyone, that we can democratize our stories uh, and our organization to everyone and, and really connect more uh, individuals to each other, no matter where they live or what they do. So uh, we look forward to your feedback, uh, as Abe said, uh, you know, on this whole series and uh, look forward to really learning more about the, the various Korean Americans who are um, doing amazing things in this country. Yeah, I, as Jessica said, we are very interested in your feedback and, and also recommendations of other leaders that can um, that we can interview in the future. Just as a reminder, uh, just to send us an email, podcast at councilka.org. Uh, that's the best way to uh, reach us and to give us your feedback. So again, uh, thank you very much for being with us on this journey of 10 episodes. And, how, and also thank you to our producer, Kevin Koo, who has uh, not only masterfully crafted all of these podcasts together, but also uh, traveled uh, with us across the country uh, to meet with various leaders and making sure we don't mess up the technology behind doing this podcast and making sure we sound professional on the air. So, <laughs> Yes, that's right. So uh, be sure to download all of our episodes on our website, Podbean, and wherever you get your podcast episodes, and look forward to the next episode. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you for tuning into the Korean American Perspectives podcast. Head over to councilka.org for the show notes of this episode and see exciting upcoming programs at CKA. That's councilka.org.